All right, so <clears throat> we're going to look at the end of chapter 45 and just about all of chapter 46 this morning. Uh, before we dive in, I want you to think about something with me here. We live, maybe you've heard this phrase, you've been in the church for a little while, we live in the already but not yet. How many have heard that phrase before? Okay, a lot of you. So what does that mean? It means we live in this time when God is already um, just parachuted into human history and changed everything. Already, God is making all things new, right? Because anybody that's a Christian is a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. But we know this world is still broken. We know that we have our own struggles and issues and sin that we still wrestle with. And so the fullness of the newness awaits. So it's already, but it's not yet, right? So one day, we're going to, like everybody that's in Christ, we're going to have resurrected bodies. Jesus is going to come back and make all things new. We're going to be glorified, the same resurrected body that he rose up from the grave with. We're going to have perfectly healthy, glorified, resurrected bodies. Nobody happy about that? So we are not, though, promised necessarily health and healing in this life. Sometimes God does that, and the kingdom breaks in, and we rejoice and give thanks. But also, sometimes God sustains us in the suffering, and the fullness of that healing doesn't come until the end, which is really the beginning, right? Already, but not yet. So is that hope of the not yet supposed to help us in the here and now? Or does it just seem too distant? And so it's just kind of unhelpful as far as the practicalities and the struggles of today. So we sung, Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. We've been redeemed. If you're a Christian, you've been set free from the slavery to sin and selfishness and pride. Like sin no longer reigns over you like a cruel master. But do you still sin? Yeah. And sometimes you feel like you're enslaved to it. And don't you long for, like Romans 8 talks about, we long for the day of our full redemption when we'll be totally set free. But the question is, is that future redemption in all of its fullness, does it have any bearing on today? Is it supposed to be helpful and hope-giving? Or is it just kind of disconnected because it's just, ah, it's off there. I, I can't really handle it, taste it, touch it. It's ethereal. Or how about one day we're going to know fullness of joy forever? That's part of the not yet, right? Now, we know joy in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always. We can, but we also struggle with discouragement and depression. And the question is, when we do, is that future hope of fullness of joy forever supposed to help us in the present? Is there any connection? I think you get the idea. So I, the songs we sung are, you know, preaching this message already. Do you wish you could see it all made new? We do, right? But wait, aren't we already new? We are, yes, but. And it's actually that future hope is supposed to help 
us in the present. It's actually part of how we fight in the present. We fight by means of the promised future. So, let me just give you one, one other example, and you'll see how this connects with Hebrews 11, if you were you know, tracking as, as David read through chapter 11. So, we have, if you're, if you're in Christ, we have a safe, secure, forever home with God. A city with foundations. Gates are never shut because there's no threats anymore. No locks on any doors. Nothing to fear. No night. When you feel rootless and out of place, is that promised hope supposed to help or is it too ethereal to be help, helpful? So we live as exiles, but we are headed home. So that eternal destination is actually supposed to help us. Like, like if you're heading home and you can't wait to have mama's cooking, does that help you keep going? Okay? I'm just trying to make sure this is, like, making sense. So these promises are really helpful. Somehow, Moses was willing to give up all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. But guess what? Did he get that reward? Did he get to even enter the promised land? No. But it enabled him, so it was very practical and helpful in the present. So keep those things in mind. There's similar examples with Abraham and Sarah, um, but we won't take a look at those now. So let's dive in here to the end of chapter 45, beginning of, or, or most of chapter 46. Um, where we left off last week, Joseph had re revealed himself to his brothers. Um, you know, they sold him into slavery. They, they thought he was gone. And, and then there's this famine, and Joseph had been mistreated in Egypt, but ultimately had risen to the right hand of Pharaoh. And he had prepared in advance for the famine years that would come. He had predicted them as he interpreted the, the Pharaoh's dream. So now Joseph's brothers are coming to Egypt to get food so that they don't starve. And unbeknownst to them, it's Joseph that's selling them the grain. So when he finally reveals himself to his brothers, look at chapter 45, verse 4. He says, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. So he could have gotten even. He could have tortured these guys. He could have, he could have gotten back at them. But he knew that God was sovereignly working all things for good. There was a purpose in this. And he says, now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And then he goes on, verse 11, go back, bring the family and I will provide for you, because again, there's these five years yet to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. John Calvin has a great comment on this. He says, this is a remarkable passage in which we are taught that the right course of events 
is never so disturbed by the depravity and wickedness of men that God can't direct them to a good end. Okay? What his brothers had done was wicked. What Potiphar's wife had done was wicked and unjust. But God was sovereignly orchestrating all of these things. And that was the reason that Joseph was able to forgive his brothers and to actually bless them even though they had cursed him. So, the end of chapter 45, verses 16 to 28, is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's plan to preserve his people. And not only to preserve them, Jacob's family, but to multiply them and turn them into a great nation, which is what he had promised Abraham and Isaac and the patriarchs, right? So let's look and read verses 16 to 28. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave his brother by his mother Rachel, his only other brother by Rachel. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So is that like a mother hen thing? Kind of like patted on, patting them on the head? I mean, you can imagine the conversations on the way back, right? I told you we shouldn't have... Okay, you're the one to talk, Mr. Self-Righteous. You know, like, well, if you wouldn't have... Well, whose idea was it? And, you know, I mean, you can imagine them even just getting into a scuffle. I don't think this is mothering and condescending by Joseph. I think it's the outworking, the extension of God's heart in Joseph to his brothers. I have forgiven you. Don't judge and condemn and attack each other. It's like the parable of the the unmerciful servant reversed. (laughs) Right? So, unfortunately, that guy was forgiven 10,000 talents, and then he goes and chokes the other one. No, Joseph has been taken care of and he is giving that grace to his brothers and he wants them to extend it to each other as well. This is not a time for rehashing history and assigning blame and arguing. Instead, it's a time for forgiveness and reunion and gratitude and love because God is working out his purposes. So God, Joseph wasn't luring his brothers to Egypt to get even and enslave them. He's welcoming his brothers to provide for and protect them. And he is blessing those who've cursed him. And he wants that to just extend out of him into them in the way that they interact with each other. It's just beautiful. So verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan. Kind of sounds like an exodus. Exodus. 
to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. I don't know if they confessed there. doesn't say that they did. Maybe they did. At some point, I'm sure he found out, but his heart becomes numb. He didn't believe them. This is 22 years. He thought his son was dead, killed by a, a wild animal. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, It is enough. Like, I didn't believe you at first, but this is enough evidence. I will go and see him before I die. So God intends here to save his covenant people. How's that going to happen? In the midst of a famine with five more years to go. Well, they're coming to Egypt. So stop and think about this. There's so many twists and turns in this story in God's providential plan. And so many of them on the ground level don't make any sense. Like imagine you're Joseph. You have these dreams. Your, your brothers are going to bow down to you and your father and mother as well. And then you get hated and envied and, you know, sold for 20 shekels to these Midianite traders and you end up in Egypt and Potiphar buys you and you rise up in his house and then his wife, you know, unjustly accuses him of rape and he gets thrown in prison and he gets forgotten in prison for a couple extra years after he, I mean, it's just like, God, how in the world are you with me and at work here? You can imagine on the ground the struggle there, right? Or you think of the Myers with precious little Lucy and this cancer diagnosis, and it's scary and it's aggressive. Like, God, how is it that you're at work with this? Like, what are you doing? Sometimes it happens at larger scales, like the five missionaries that were killed in Ecuador in the Amazon jungle in 1956. That left five widows and a number of little fatherless children. Five-year-old Steve Saint. Valerie Elliott was one year old when her, when her daddy was speared to death. Two years later, she and Elizabeth Elliott go live with those very Indians that killed her husband. Like, so on the ground, you're going, what in the world? They were just making headway. Like, why? But then it opened the door for this tribe to come to faith in Christ. And the news of those missionary's death ended up like raising up a massive force of missionary energy in the decades to follow. So it happens at the individual level. It happens at larger scale levels. So there's a famine here. Like, how are they going to be fruitful and multiply? How are they going to become this great nation? How are they even going to survive? All kinds of twists and turns. How often in this life can it seem like one step forward, two or three or five back? Can seem like we're moving away from the fulfillment of God's promises. But then he surprises us and we see his wisdom in orchestrating things. Like Paul with the thorn in his flesh. Can't you imagine him like, take it away, take it away, take it away. Like, I've got a lot of, like there's a lot of people that need to know about Jesus. And I'm here suffering. Like, if I could just be healed here, I've healed so many other people. If I could just be healed, I'd be so much more effective as a missionary. And God says, no, I actually, it's more important that you be humble, Paul. 
and that my power be perfected in your weakness. That's more important than your health or whatever the thorn in the flesh was. And once he heard that and understood it, then he said, okay, great. I boast in my weaknesses because I want the power of Christ to be on display in my life. So humility and living in God's strength are way better than pride and being able to manage on my own. I mean, how many people, I know multiple people who've said this to me, my own mother included, deep, deep waters of suffering. I wouldn't choose this for anyone, but I wouldn't trade the intimacy of communion with God in and through this trial for anything. So what about your life? I mean, it is so easy to spiral when we get these hard twists and turns. And we need, we need to know that God is working all things together for good when the hardships come. That's what's happening here. That's why this story is here, so that we can see God's oftentimes counterintuitive work and even his timeline is so much different than ours so that we trust him like Joseph did, knowing that he is working these things. He, those brothers intended it for evil, but God meant it, intended it for good. And he's bringing about the fulfillment of those purposes right here for us to see his faithfulness. And we're going to need it as well. Some of you are in it right now, and you need to be reminded that this is true. Even though it seems like one step forward, three steps back, no, God is with you, and you are running the race set before you, and Jesus is leading you all the way home, and he's with you all the way. So, Jacob, Israel, begins this journey to Egypt with his family, and all they have, you know, all their stuff on these wagons, here we go, you can imagine his just, he's totally bewildered. He's totally blown away. He is excited to see his son that he thought was dead, 22 years. But you can imagine that he would begin to second guess this decision. Point number two, fear of jeopardizing the fulfillment. Look at verses 1 to 7 of chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. He is no tribal, local deity. He is the God of heaven and earth. He can go wherever he wants. So I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. It's really emphatic in the Hebrew. It is I that will surely bring you up, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes when you die. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons, his sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, 
all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Okay, so here's the deal. Like, he probably knew that God had once prohibited his father Isaac, do you remember this, from going into Egypt in a famine. It's back in chapter 26. And he also probably knew that his grandfather Abraham took a trip to Egypt in response to a famine, and that did not go well back in chapter 12. So maybe he's starting to fear, like, ooh, is this disobedience? Maybe I shouldn't leave the promised land. I don't want to bring on divine displeasure, consequences. God had promised us this land, Canaan, not Egypt. Like, what if Pharaoh sends us back? What if, what if you know, he seeks to assimilate us or enslave us? Or, I mean, I'm moving everyone and everything. Like, I'm just betting the farm on this. Isn't it so merciful and kind for God to speak to him here? Not only to convince him that God was behind and at work through all this, but to give him permission, really, to leave the promised land. Like, no, 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 this is part of my plan. I'm actually intending for the, the proliferation of the nation to happen in Egypt. And then I'll bring you up. He gives that promise. So the trip to Egypt is not going to undermine the promises of God to his fathers, you know, the promised land, the land, but it's actually going to fulfill those promises. Egypt is one step closer, even though it's totally out of the way, to the fulfillment of the promises. It's one step closer, not two steps back. Same idea here. So that's kind of an overview of what's happening here as far as the sequence with the people of God heading down to Egypt. Let's just step back and put this passage in the context of the whole Bible and see about application for us. So point number three, God is with us wherever we go. So, certainly this is something that God wanted to assure Jacob of, Jacob of in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 46. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you, and I will, I will bring you up again. So, God's presence with him doesn't save him from the suffering of slavery to come down the road, the people of God, but it does assure God's presence all along. So the suffering may still happen, but I am with you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, evil for you are with me. It's like Jesus said in John 16, in me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So there's actually another pointer to this truth in Genesis 46 that's probably in kind of a surprising place. You know I didn't read verses 8 to, to uh, 27. It's a list of names, and I'm actually not going to read it. But look down at the end. It's not a throwaway list. There's good reason for it. Look down at the end of verse 27. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Okay, so if you look carefully into the numbers, there are some questions and how it all adds up, and it's not worth going into that now, but the, it does seem clear that 70 is a round number intended to mean the whole company. Okay, 7, number of perfection, 10, number of fullness, 7 times 10, completeness, fullness, just like the 70 nations back in Genesis 10. Okay, so the point is the full number is going down to Egypt. Nobody's left behind. And so the question is, will the people of God survive? Will God's promises be fulfilled? 
Now listen, we know the story. We know how it turned out. So we read this kind of like a children's book, and we patronizingly say, of course, of course it all got fulfilled. But it was a big deal, and there were big threats and big challenges. That's why Jacob was, you know, in need of God coming to speak to him and say, don't fear, I'm with you. So we're so quick to just kind of read this like a children's storybook Bible and kind of move on. Oh, of course God fulfilled his promises. But have you ever noticed when we see the big threats and challenges to God's promises in our own lives? We don't usually say, oh, of course, no problem. We freak out and we question and we doubt. But the point of this story with real struggles and doubts and fears is that God is faithful. He will fulfill his promises. He did it for them. There were real and big threats if you get in their shoes, if you kind of enter into the story, and he can do it for us through our real and big threats. So think about this. By the time this was written, okay, by Moses, right? The people of God had experienced the fulfillment of these promises. Moses wrote this in the wilderness. So they look back on how God delivered Joseph and preserved his people, the people of God. They saw how the multiplication of the people of Israel was foretold, and it happened. The mistreatment and slavery under a new pharaoh foretold, it happened. The deliverance foretold, it happened. God was faithful in and through all of it, even in and through those years of slavery. He's working his sovereign plan through all the twists and turns, terrible as they may be, and the story is intended to bolster their faith, Israelites in the wilderness, and our faith. God was with them, working all things according to the counsel of his will, fulfilling his promises. They could trust him. They could count on him. He was with them wherever they went. You know, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. So this theme, God is with us. If we are in Christ, God is with us wherever we go. And that is echoed all the way through the Bible. It's with Moses when he's afraid to go to Pharaoh. And God says, but I will be with you. How about on the verge of Canaan, the promised land with those giants? Be strong and courageous. Deuteronomy 31. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. To Joshua, he's about to lead the people into the promised land. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. How about the exiles when they've been in Babylon and they want to get home to Jerusalem? Israel. But now, thus says the Lord, who has created you, O Jacob, people of God, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Fear not, for I am with you. And then it gets even better in the New Testament. The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God 
with us. And then Jesus is going to live and die for us and return to his Father, but he's not going to leave us alone as orphans to fend for ourselves. John 14, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of God dwelling within us. He dwells in you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Matthew 28, 20, to his disciples, as they go and make disciples, he promises, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then finally, fully, forever, when Jesus returns, Revelation 21, 3, the promised land, the eternal promised land, the new creation, all things new, The best part of that is that God's there. He's going to dwell with us. He's going to be with us, unmediated, face-to-face, forever. Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So he is with us wherever we go. He will never, ever leave us or forsake us. And Joseph's life is testimony to that. Hebrews 11, these saints line the way, cheering us on, saying, he's faithful, he's faithful, he's with you, he's with you, trust him. Like, you might say, well, you haven't suffered enough to say that to me. Okay, Joseph has. He can say that to you. So here we are. We live in between the already but the not yet. We have received and we have not yet received. Did you notice that language in Hebrews 11? Flip back there again to the passage that Dave wrote earlier, read earlier. It shows up a couple times. Look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. It's the promised land, right? And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents. Why would you live in a tent in the land of promise? So he received the promise, and, and the promised land, the Canaan, was kind of like a foretaste, but it wasn't the full promise. So he lived in a tent there temporarily because he's actually looking to an eternal promised land already, but not yet. He understood that. So he didn't have to settle down and try to make Canaan heaven because he knew that heaven was coming. Do you see how the future hope set him free to live like a pilgrim? Isn't that crazy? He received it, but he didn't receive it. Same thing with Moses. He received the promise of the reward, but he didn't receive the reward. But that didn't stop him. It was actually that promise that drove him and enabled him to say no to all the lesser, lesser ple- pleasures of Egypt because he wanted the true pleasures that only God could give. 
Look at how Hebrews 11 ends. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So they're in heaven right now, but they're still waiting for the fullness of the promise. And it's not coming for all of us until the last one of us crosses the finish line, Jesus comes home or comes back, and all things are made new. So these already but not yet examples are intended to help us to wait and trust and keep running the race that's set before us because God is faithful and every little foretaste is an early appetizer of the banquet that is to come. We can trust him. He's going to be with us wherever we go. He will not leave us or forsake us. So, is it good that we remind ourselves of this? <laughs> like, you may be sick and God may not heal you, but can you, can, can Barry say, I can't wait for my new body, and can that have any bearing on him now? Yes! I am so downcast and depressed. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Hope in God. For I will yet again praise him. And you may be in a dark night of soul for a while, but there can be light that breaks in now already. And one day you are going to know fullness of joy forever. And you can be defiant in the face of the despair and discouragement in this life, knowing that God is with you wherever you go, and he's going to make good on every single one of those promises. So let's continue to remind ourselves of this. It is good. He is good. We're not home yet, but God is with us all the way there. Let's pray. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song that just gives expression to this very thing on Jordan's stormy banks. So, Father, we, we are elect exiles. We are You've set your affection on us. You've made us your own. You've adopted us into your family. But we are still out of place. This world is not our home. We suffer. We struggle. We long for the day when we will come home. And we pray that you would help us as we wait. Help us as we endure. Help us as we run. Let us also, like all those saints before, let us also throw off the things that hinder us and the sin that entangles us and help us to run with endurance the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Thank you that he blazed the trail. Thank you that, that he's going to bring us all the way home and you will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.